Well, good morning. Before I, before I get started on the lesson, I want to make a quick announcement about the Bible Bowl. As most of y'all know, we had a, a quick meeting last Sunday. We discussed a few things, and basically we've uh, decided to start meeting uh, Sundays at 4 o'clock uh, before the Sunday evening service to have an extra class time. Um, the chapter this year, or I'm sorry, the book this year is Revelation. Uh, so it's going to be pretty dif difficult to get through um, all of that. And also it was decided on what I thought was a good idea that uh, dedicating the Bible studies specifically to Bible Bowl, it kind of lost a little bit of a uh, chance for evangelism for a lot of our visitors and things like that. Uh, and definitely for a, a new person learning about the Bible, the book of Revelation is not the place to start. Um, so tonight at, at 4 o'clock and Sundays uh, following until Bible Bowl at 4 o'clock, all the kids will be meeting here um, to go through a lesson before the 530 service. Uh, we do have the print-offs. Uh, I'm going to try to show up here a little bit early tonight and get the, um, the books made and all that stuff put together for the class. Uh, so everything should be running smoothly, hopefully. The Bible Bowl this year is September the 10th, Saturday, September the 10th. Um, and as usual, you know, just like last year, we, you know, if you want to come out and watch, we always have a good time. We always have pizza and, and drinks and all that stuff. Uh, so we definitely want to support our kids uh, as they do the Bible Bowl, uh, as we do every year. <coughs> um, Again, good morning. I'm glad uh, to be here. I kind of uh, appreciate when uh, Randy takes off because it gives me a chance to do this. It seems like uh, putting a lesson together gets a little easier, and of course standing in front of, of everybody gets a little easier uh, every time I get a chance to do it, and I appreciate that. The, sub, uh, the title for this lesson this morning is Justice, Mercy, and Grace. And specifically, we're going to look at these three topics as to how they apply to our salvation. So justice of the three is probably the easiest for us to, to get a grasp on. Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, describes it as the administration of law. And, of course, there's a different couple of ways to use those words. Usually we think of, of a police officer, you know, bringing a criminal to justice. Um, but it even goes as far as to defining laws, defining punishments for those laws, and so forth. Uh, it, it contains a sense of fairness. Justice and fairness go along hand in hand. They're not quite the same, but they're uh, very much included together. The punishment for the crime has to be fair. It has to, you know, as far as the American justice system is concerned, it's got to match up with the crime. You know, we're not going to send somebody to a life sentence for stealing a pack of baseball cards, for example. That just wouldn't be fair. Um, society, specifically us in America, Society is defined by the laws that it creates. I want you to imagine uh, this country without the Constitution that gives us the freedom of religion. You know, there are countries in this world that don't have that freedom. There are people in this world that don't have that freedom. The laws that a country makes, that a society makes, define it. You know, particularly our government. We, our laws define crime to the letter. And I'll show you an example here in just a second. I don't know why it cut off the bottom, but... Uh, um, I'll try to fill in for what it may cut off. I'm going to give you an example in just a second of how the Tennessee lawmakers look and read at laws, just to give us an idea uh, of that. And that uh, bottom mark there, justice is the creation, the interpretation, and the enforcement. So there are three parts of justice, as far as our justice and God's justice. We'll look at that later. But justice is the creation, interpretation, and enforcement of laws. Without justice, society would not exist. Think about that for a second. If, 
if there weren't police officers, if there weren't laws, if there wasn't punishment for crime, there would be no society. It would be man versus man, family versus family, and that's it. You, you kill it, you, you take it. That's what society would be like if there were no laws. Let's take a quick look at, uh, if, for those of you taking notes, don't worry about writing this down because the, the screen is going to be full, but uh, I just want to run through it real briefly and give you an example of the Tennessee justice system. It's the Tennessee Code Annotator, the TCA. It's broken down into titles, chapters, and parts. Specifically, Title 39 is the criminal offenses section. There's titles for, for businesses to follow, laws for businesses, to, for speeding tickets. That's Title 55, traffic violations, all that stuff. This is the description of robbery. Robbery is probably the easiest one to grab, and it actually fit on one screen. So robbery is the intentional or knowing theft of property from the person of another by violence. So you get that uh, picture in your mind of, of a mugging. You know, somebody walking up to somebody, beating them up, taking their wallet, taking their purse. That is robbery. Now for aggravated robbery, it's robbery but where you use a deadly weapon or have you ever seen in, in a, on TV where a robber will have his finger in his coat pocket but it'll look like a gun? Well, that's enough to make it aggravated robbery. It's either accomplished with a deadly weapon or a display of any article used or fashioned to lead the victim to reasonably, reasonably believe, or if they suffer bodily injury. So if, you, if somebody gets mugged and they are seriously injured, it's aggravated robbery. And of course, especially aggravated robbery is, is just the, kind of the next level up. <clears throat> it's accomplished with a deadly weapon, so they do have a gun or they do have a knife, and they, are, they suffer bodily injury. This is what the TCA is, in, in essence. It is uh, literally what, what constitutes a crime, what constitutes the severity of the crime, and what's the punishment of that crime. As you can see, robbery is a Class C felony. Aggravated robbery is a Class B felony. And especially aggravated is a Class A felony. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is Title 40, Chapter 35, Part 111. This is where our, our laws for the state of Tennessee lay out the punishments for felonies. As you can see, Class A would be the worst. Uh, fine, uh, not less than 15 or more than 60 years in prison. Felony is a determinate sentence, Part A up there. A determinate sentence means that the law states specifically what the punishment is. It's the judge can't just make something up. The judge has to follow these rules. And as you can see, as you step down the scale, the year requirement for the, for the punishment goes down as well as the fine. Like I said, I was going to get through that quick. But that is how Tennessee, at least, and the judges and the police officers and the prosecutors, those are the rules that they have to follow to enforce our laws. <clears throat> Let's take a quick look at a timeline for our American justice system. Typically speaking, you know, judging from, from all of the knowledge that we have on law and order and all that stuff. But this is pretty much how it goes. Step one, a crime is committed. And step two, hopefully, the suspect is apprehended. They're brought to court. They have a trial, etc. This is where the prosecutors provide proof. We've all seen that. After the proof is determined, guilt is determined. They look at the law. They say, OK, this person did this. They're charged with this crime. They are guilty. Bang. Step five, the sentence length, sentence length or the fine amount is decided by law, as we just looked at. And then step six, when propitiation is paid, now that's the key word. I'm going to say that word a lot, and I'll probably mess it up a few times. When propitiation is paid, the criminal is released. 
So in this case, propitiation is the serving of the sentence or the paying of the fine. Once either one of those two conditions are met, that criminal is released. He's not forgiven, it's still on his record, but he is released from service. Consider that phrase there at the bottom. <clears throat> I'm sure you've all heard it before. That somebody has paid their debt to society. You know, they commit a crime, they do their time, their debt is paid. That is, in essence, what it means to make propitiation for your crime. Now, God's justice is very similar. It's actually kind of eerie. It's almost like, you know, our court system decided to use his ideas or something, you know. <clears throat> when Jesus returns the second time, he is going to judge us. He will be our judge, but it's not going to be his opinions or his prerogatives. He's going to judge us by the word. John chapter 12, verse 48 says, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. And also even back in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, obviously talking about Jesus, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. So when Jesus comes back, he will judge us by the word. You know, you have that picture in your head of, of, of a judge nowadays. He's standing there behind the bench. He's got his gavel. And then behind him is usually the seal of the state of Tennessee or wherever he may be judging for. And in my head, I see that same thing. Of course, this is, you know, what my, what my mind's eye sees is Jesus there standing in a bench with the word in his hand instead of a gavel and God behind him because he is judging for God. And in essence, the timeline is very similar. So, for example, or in this timeline of God's justice, step one, sin is committed. This is, we know this is as life. Um, all men have sinned. Sin is committed. Step two, the criminal is apprehended, or the soul is called to judgment. Jesus comes back, calls every soul, the just and the unjust, the, live, the living and the dead. All those souls will come back and be judged. Now, step three and the other one was, was proof where proof is provided. But in God's justice, there is no proof. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He knows what every man has done and knows every man's sin. So there is no proof. He knows what you've done. And since he knows what you've done, he can determine your guilt based on the word. Whether you've sinned, whether you've not done what he said, all of that can be determined by the word. Now, in this case, God's justice is also a determinate sentence. That sentence is eternity, period. There's no longer, shorter, can't get any longer, but there's no shorter sentence. It is eternity. The fine, even back in the Old Testament, has been a blood sacrifice. And then number six, of course, propitiation must be met. So how do we, as humans, lowly little humans, how do we provide propitiation? Well, we can't. We do not have the means to provide it for ourselves. Matthew 19, <clears throat> let's see, Matthew 19, 25 and 26 says, When his disciples heard it, now this is speaking of the, uh, uh, the rich man that came and said, how would, he, how would he be saved? And Jesus told him to give away all his riches. And he said that a camel will sooner pass through the, the eye of a needle than a rich man will make it into heaven. And so the, his, his disciples wondered, you know, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible. 
With men, salvation is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So men have no way to save themselves on their own. They need help. So how has God made it possible, you might ask? Well, how can man achieve propitiation? Well, it's already been paid for us. Somewhere about 2,000 years ago, give or take. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2 says, And he, speaking of Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John chapter 4 verse 10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then Romans 3, this is the, the verse that Brother Adam read, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So the propitiation for us was paid 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. He was the blood sacrifice that is adequate for God's justice. So what else is included in that offer of propitiation, you might ask? Propitiation is not enough on its own. Mercy is also required. God is both perfectly just and perfectly merciful at the same time. Let me give you an example. Imagine a judge in a courtroom who is only just. He receives every criminal guilty sentence, gives everyone the maximum fine, the maximum penalty, every time without fail. That judge is just, but he is not merciful. The Bible says that God is merciful and just. Imagine the, a judge, on the other hand, who is perfectly merciful. A person comes in, he is committed of a crime, he is guilty. The judge either lets him go or gives him the lightest sentence possible. He's not doing a service to society. He is no longer just. God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful at the same time. He will do exactly what he says. He will punish those that do not obey the law, but he will be merciful to those who have followed his rules. Best definition of mercy that I could find for this lesson is the withholding of rightful punishment. Now, we all have it in our head that, you know, yes, sins will be forgiven and we won't be punished for those. But it goes just a little bit deeper than that. <clears throat> Excuse me. See, uh, I lost my place. Here we go. Without propitiation, without being part of, of what Jesus did for us, we will not receive mercy. We can't. Acts chapter 13, verse 38 and 39 says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, through Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. All men are justified of all things through Christ Jesus. Now sin, we know, 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 4 says, sin is a transgression of God's law, period. We know that. Um, all men have sinned. We've already read that a few times, Romans 3.23. So all men require uh, God's mercy to avoid punishment. God wants all men to be saved. Let me say that first and foremost. God wants all men to be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that. Who will have all men, God, will have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. So 
The question is, how is God's mercy applied and when? Obviously, his mercy right now is not applied to us yet. Does that make sense? His mercy will apply to us in the judgment when his mercy forgives, forgives us of our sins. Let me go to a timeline for God's mercy. I know I keep going back to the same thing, but I want to try to make the same point. <clears throat> for somebody who has gotten into that propitiation, they have, that has been paid for them, Jesus' mercy will apply. And this is the same timeline, same six steps, but let me go through it and show you the difference. Step one, sin is committed, obviously. Step two, the soul is called to judgment. Same thing. Now, step three is where it changes. Step three on the other ones was, was proof. Remember, the, the proof of sin. Let me make sure. Yeah, proof of sin. Well, for a Christian who has bought into that propitiation that Jesus offered to us, has obtained mercy through forgiveness. With God's merciful forgiveness, no sins are found to condemn. So through God's mercy, we are forgiven of those sins. And then step four, as we go through the process, innocence is then determined by the word. God, Jesus goes through this, judges us by the word. There are no sins to be found. <clears throat> if we've obeyed what's in the, God, in, in the word, that sentence length is still eternity. And that propitiation is still the blood of a sacrifice. But if we have bought into that propitiation by Jesus, paid by Jesus' blood, we have received the mercy for the forgiveness of our sins, that eternity is not spent in punishment. That eternity is spent in heaven. So God's mercy is provided when one has taken part in the propitiation of Jesus' blood. <clears throat> My final question, why has God provided mercy? I, I don't mean to speak to the mind of God. I, you know, I, I couldn't uh, imagine, but... He has, and the Bible tells us why, because of his grace. He has given us the pathway to mercy because of his grace. Now, the definition that fits that we've heard most of the time is unmerited favor. That's what grace is. Unmerited meaning you don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. This is not something that you could or would ever be able to earn on your own. <clears throat> a, I guess a layman's term definition Getting a reward you don't deserve. That is a good definition for grace. A Christian's reward, in that same vein, a Christian's reward is mercy. Again, we, we don't deserve it. There is no reason other than the grace of God for us to expect mercy. We have sinned. We have broken his laws. He will punish those that do, but some of us through Jesus' blood and the propitiation he paid, will receive mercy as, uh, 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 I'm losing the word here. <clears throat> Let me just move on, I'm sorry. Yeah, consider this statement. God's grace has provided us with a pathway to God's mercy. Consider that statement. That is the gist of grace. The promise that he has given to us and the, the reward from that contract, that covenant that he made with man when Jesus died on the cross. Grace has provided us a pathway to mercy. Titus 3 verse 5. 
It says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of, re of rebirth and renewed renewal by the Holy Spirit. He saved us because of His mercy. Or not because of His mercy. Sorry. But because of His mercy. Keep getting off track. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Praise be to the God of our and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, mercy. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now that, the, the last portion there, it is by grace that you have been saved. The denominational world takes that and runs with it and says grace is the only thing you need. That's not the case. It is because of God's grace he gave us a pathway to receive his mercy. So it's not grace that saves, it is grace that allows for salvation. That may make a little more sense. Ephesians 1, verse 6 and 7. To the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. In, whom we have redemption through, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the richness of his grace. Again, grace gives us the ability to be saved. And there's really no better reason. You know, we, why did God give us grace? Why did he allow us this pathway? There's no better explanation than John 3.16. For God so loved the earth that he gave, or the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is why. Because God so loved the world. Not that God loved the world, but he so loved the world that he gave us this pathway through his grace, gave us a pathway for Jesus so that we can get into his death, we can get that, that propitiation can be paid for us, and through the, the mercy of God, we're forgiven of sins, and heaven can be our home. So, how do we accept that offer of propitiation? How are we, lowly humans, not worthy of this grace, never deserving of it? How can we get into it? Let me read, once again, the, the lesson for the text. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Through faith in his blood. That's how. How do we get into propitiation? Through faith in his blood. Symbolically, this is pulling from several different verses, symbolically we must come into contact with Jesus' blood. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says that we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So this propitiation, this offer that Jesus, that, that Jesus was set up for, that was decided long ago at the foundation of the world. God knew that Jesus would come and make this sacrifice. Excuse me. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth, cleanseth us all from sin. Again, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from sin. 
And then Revelation 1, chapter, uh, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loves us, and washed us from our sins in his blood. Again, Jesus' blood. Now, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> once a year, the high priest would, they would do their uh, bullock or their lamb offering, would bring it into the holiest of holies. You know, you had the tabernacle, you had the, the, the holy place, which had the, the showbread, the, the lantern, the altar of incense. And then you had the holiest of holies. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubims leaning forward, and there in the middle was the mercy seat. And as part of this once-a-year atonement, that high priest would take the blood from the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the altar. That sufficed, that sacrifice sufficed for the children of Israel to pay their propitiation. That was what it, it took for them. They were chosen of God. They were given a, a law, a rule. That was their propitiation. For us, it's not that easy. Uh, the blood of a, of a goat or a bull is, is meaningless for us. It's not good enough for our sins and for the sins of the world. Ultimately, we come into contact with Jesus' blood at baptism. Let me read a few verses there. Colossians 2, verse 12. It says, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised us from the dead. And Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. <clears throat> so in order to be part of that propitiation, we have to come into contact with Jesus' blood. How do we do that? Ultimately, it's a baptism. It's symbolic. We don't actually touch or come into contact with blood, but it is the, the, the act of baptism that symbolizes that. I want you to remember what I said. God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful at the same time. He will punish those that sin against him, those that transgress his laws. He will punish them. But he has given us a pathway for mercy. Forgiveness of sins and mercy are one and the same in this, uh, in this lesson. The mercy that he has provided is the forgiveness of sins. And remember that God is gracious. He is perfectly gracious. He so loved the world that he gave his son for us before the foundation of the world, before man was created. He knew that Jesus would come and be the sacrifice for our sins. And that is something that we don't deserve. Plain and simple. His grace provides something that we do not deserve. So the question is, well, what must I do to be saved? On the back of the bulletin there in front of you, if you picked one up, we have this exact text. This is what you must do to be saved. You must hear the word. That, that, that makes sense. Nobody argues with that. <clears throat> you have to know who God is. You have to learn who God is, learn what he did, learn who his son is, learn what Jesus did for us. You have to believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he is who he says he is. 
and that he came for remission of our sins. You have to repent of those past sins. Whatever life that you lived before has to stop. Whether it's drinking, partying, sexual immorality, whatever, that has to stop. You repent. You turn away. You know, it's a change in mind that comes about a change in action. That's how it's been defined here before, uh, especially by Brother Randy. You have to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We have several, several examples of that. The Ethiopian eunuch is usually the first one that comes to my mind. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he was immediately baptized and brought into Jesus. And, and there, that next step, you have to be baptized. I've said it before, I'll say it again. There are ten examples of what must I do to be saved in the Bible. And all ten of them include baptism. Every single one. And then, of course, we have to remain faithful. You know, we, the Bible does not teach the, the doctrine of once saved, always saved. There are examples in the Bible where somebody has fallen away. And so that can happen to us just as it happened to them in the Bible. Remain faithful. Now, we as Christians, we have a, uh, a pathway to be forgiven of those sins. We come and we repent. It's basically step three again. We repent of those sins and we turn away from them and we ask for forgiveness. And God, in his graciousness, has provided the mercy in the form of forgiveness of sins for us. <clears throat> now, for... Those of us, if anyone here today is not a Christian, I would Im implore you to ask yourself why. You know, the, there are several reasons that people have, have come up with. I don't have the time. I don't have the effort. I don't believe yet. Um, I, I don't think I need that. You know, I, it usually comes down to a lack of knowledge. They, some some non-Christians, most non-Christians, just don't know enough to know whether they, what they need to do. And I would implore you, if there's anyone here who has any questions at all, or any, any doubt in their mind, or anything like that, to come and ask one of our elders, one of our deacons, and we can sit down and we can talk with you. We can explain it to you, just like I did here, what it takes to be saved. Now, for those of us that are Christians, we've already taken part in the blood of Christ. We've already been baptized. We are in, we are covered under God's mercy right now. But, again, some of us can fall away. Some of us can do things that we're not proud of. We do things that make us feel guilty. If those things are done in a public manner, then we, we have no choice but to come forward and ask for forgiveness. That is the, the standard that has been set before us, to be perfect unto death. The invitation is offered here uh, very shortly. Uh, Brother Dyer's got a song selected. And uh, if you are subject to the invitation of the Lord this morning, would you please come forward while we stand and while we sing?